Vancouver to Toronto to the big show in advertising and uh, when I got to Toronto it was a big town lonely town and I was looking around for people who could help me out people who'd be my friends and two of the people who I met first who have been fast friends ever since were Nancy Vonk and Janet Keston the co-creative directors of Ogilvy and Mather. Uh, Nancy and Janet weren't just creative directors though they were famous creative directors uh, they were part of the creative team that came up with the uh, Dove Natural Beauty campaign, which has gone on to become more than advertising. It's actually a social movement. Uh, they've done a number of uh, famous campaigns. And uh, what's interesting, they got out of the business. Um, they jumped out and they recreated themselves in a new business. And uh, they're also published authors. They're heavy on the speaking circuit. So they're very, very popular people with a very relevant message on the state of advertising today and where it's going, which I thought was interesting for this show, given our theme of brands that are uh, looking to the future and uh, profiting because of it today. I was lucky enough to corral one of the two uh, in the middle of their busy circuit, Nancy Vaughn. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Now, you know, I just talked about uh, the changing world of advertising and uh, there are some things that have changed and there are some things that have not changed. Tell me, what are the things that have stayed the same? Well, an awful lot has stayed the same, uh, funnily enough, since I started in the business in the early 80s. Um, I think one of the main things that remains ever, ever true is that creative people are still uh, called upon to collaborate to come up with good solutions to solve their clients' problems. And um, whereas that started out as, um, or, or has been for decades, um, something that looked like a, a duo, a writer and an art director, which Janet and I were, that's, that was our starting point together, um, coming up with these these ideas, the collaboration looks a bit differently today. There, it, there are many more people involved in getting to uh, the best solutions, and, and I think that's an exciting an exciting difference. But um, yeah, it, there's still a, a fundamentally um, a job to do that that means you hope that inspiration is going to show up <laughs> and that uh, that everybody's going to get to um, an outcome that looks like fame and fortune all around right now that there's I mean advertising at its core uh, is still a relatively simple proposition you want to uh, grab people's attention you want to leave them with a smile or, or stir up their emotion a little bit and sell them stuff but every once in a while, uh, you create a campaign, or very, not very once in a while, very, very seldom, you manage to create a campaign uh, that actually transcends that, becomes a social movement. Now, the Dove campaign that you were um, part of, along with a lot of other folks, uh, transcended 
conventional advertising and went on to become a social movement. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it was quite an amazing um, experience to work with our Dove clients. Actually, from the start, that was a through line for Janet and I throughout our careers. We started working on that brand in the early 90s, and um, it set us up for career success when we worked with a really visionary client named Peter Elwood from the outset, and he was ready to kind of do things differently at that point after 30-some years of, of that brand, um, doing t seven-day tests and um, hearing women talk about how much their husbands like their soft skin. So, so we, <laughs> we had a bit of a head start in the Canadian market on talking differently to women, and it, it really paved the way for um, the Campaign for Real Beauty, which um, came into the world in about 2004. Um, and it was, it was great to be amongst the, the leadership on, on that coming into the world. It was actually five Ogilvy offices around the world that collaborated on it with, with an amazing client, mm -hmm. Sylvia Lagnato. So at that point in time, Dove was entering the beauty category for the first time and didn't really have great credentials to do that if you consider they were basically known as a bar of soap. So um, the, the big insight was um, that the brand could show up as a bit of a, a shit disturber really in that category um, if we felt like the, the DNA of the brand was the, an honest brand, um, it had always featured real women. I may not have always enjoyed exactly how they were used all the time, but they were yeah. real. Um, and, you know, kind of, wow, wouldn't that be a breath of fresh air to introduce a re real into a space that is jam-packed with um, the opposite of that? And when we, when we looked at um, kind of the really big picture it doesn't take long to see in the beauty category that right under the surface you've got a, a lot of issues around women feeling bad about themselves and um, and from there you know there was there was a lot of research and a lot of attention putting put into how could we engage in um, that bigger picture and ultimately you know, what came out of that was uh, um, the belief that the brand could come to be seen as a champion for women and girls and make all kinds of genuine, uh, not only conversation around that, but um, have some new tools and ideas around how things might be different. You know, it's, it's a funny thing because at its heart, it's such a simple idea, which is why I think it, it transcended cultures and it went around the world so quickly. And uh, all the Ogilvy offices working on it together came up with a harmonious message. Usually it becomes a bit of a pissing match between people. But at its core, the message is feel comfortable in your own skin, right? And uh, what I always find funny in advertising, having worked on campaigns that start with such a simple proposition, that a lot of the times getting to that simple proposition and just coming out and saying it is such a battle because there are vested interests in 
in uh, maintaining the status quo and doing things the old way and is it going to have the proof and you know but it's such a beautiful simple streamlined thought and everybody no matter if they're nine or 99 they get it and it's a beautiful inspiring idea and i think that was the secret of its success yeah i i think it was um clearly uh an idea that that came forward at a also um at the right time yeah it was a time when the world was really um, open to the to the message, and um, I do think timing is everything. Yeah, I, of course. If the same message had been um, looked at much sooner in in point in time, it could have come and gone and not gotten any real traction. I want to I want to talk a bit about one of the things that um, it's front and center in the advertising business as it is in so many businesses. You've based your latest book on it, uh, darling. You can't do both. The whole idea of um, women and their evolving roles in advertising. One of the great roles in Mad Men was the the young copywriter who came up from being a secretary and fought uh, to be respected in the creative department. Um, but you. Uh, you've been in the trenches for a long time. Have you seen change? Have you seen real change? And have you seen new problems develop as old ones fall away? Well, I think that the, the, the horrible truth is I haven't seen a lot of change when it comes to gender um, in the workplace. It, it's um, We did a lot of research to write the book, and, and our starting point was our own industry. We were looking at, at advertising, but it goes well beyond advertising. Um, how how much is not changing for for women? So when I say that, it's it can sound like what do you mean? There's like a zillion women coming into the industry, and that is true. And there's more graduates than ever coming out of the schools. You can see schools with more women than men. Um, and really, um, you know, should should be a happy ending story, like problem solved. But what still happens is that by their um, mid-30s, maybe even a little sooner, you see women lower their goals, maybe even leave the industry altogether. And I'd say that is um, because there is still so much bias in the workplace. And, and I would say most of that bias is, like all bias, people don't realize they have it. <laughs> people, yeah. they're not, nobody's saying to themselves in the morning, Hey, I wonder how I can express my bias against women today. You know, it, it, that's not what's happening. But what is happening is we've been, we're still being socialized from the time we're born, even today. Um, and I say this based on research, not just my opinion. Um, it's the message is still there that um, the men are more capable and uh, to to be trusted more than the than the than the women. So so from the earliest age, little girls and little boys are hearing boys are better. Not not in those literal words. The signals are all there. And you take that right through into your adulthood and into the workplace and you've got that playing out. So you see, you know, certainly on the behalf of uh, the top bosses who are still wildly predominantly men, um, they're putting people into the most senior and most trusted positions, people like them, people they feel most confident in. And even women who can be in the uh, very big positions um, can have an underlying uh, 
and probably don't realize they even have it, an underlying preference for putting men into to senior positions as well because they bought into the men are better than the, the boys are better than the girls too. Um, this was a huge eye-opener for me. I didn't have this perspective until I did years of research on this book. Um, but I think it explains a lot. Uh, again, I don't think it's malicious. I don't think it's anything about bad intent. I think it's just what do you expect is going to happen. Yeah. We, we live in a culture also that reinforces over and over again that the men are more competent and more desirable as leaders. So women who come in with ambition, and by the way, some of it is not so subtle, the kinds of behaviors that still go on are jaw-dropping, can be jaw-dropping. Um, we've talked to women in very recent um, times uh, telling us things like um, one woman went for a job interview, the creative leader loved her portfolio, commented on her wedding band, oh, you're married? Yes. Oh, how old are you? And not, apparently knowing that's illegal to ask at <laughs> And she said, I'm 29. And he said, you know what? Um, you're probably going to have kids someday sooner than later, right? And I, I'm so sorry. I just can't afford to hire someone who's probably going to uh, be getting pregnant any day soon. So that's, that's not a legal conversation. But, you know, just because the laws are there doesn't mean everybody got the memo, nor, nor that they... There. Well, you know, it, it's one of those things, it, it, and it doesn't need to be that overt. Uh, no, no. I, as a creative director, could have somebody come in, show a great portfolio. I look on their left hand, I see a wedding ring, I go, oh, I don't have to say anything. But no, suddenly, exactly. something inside. And that takes a exactly. long time to, to dispel that. Now, you, uh, you are also uh, very, very famous. You've, you were at the center of a very big dust-up when it came to gender relations. Uh, our friend Ignacio, um, who started IHaveAnIdea.org, was uh, building a small um, advertising-centric sort of um, community online, and he hosted uh, forums, and he brought in one of the big shots. I remember when I started in Hong Kong, he was the big shot, Neil French, and we all looked up to him. We thought he was a god, although he was a bit of a, a randy god and a bit of an off-color god, but he was a god. And Ignacio brought him in to talk, and I remember that uh, you were at the center of this controversy, and I think it, 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 it fired a huge shot for the advancement of uh, gender roles, or roles for women in advertising. Can you describe that? Um, well, that was nine years ago, so I'm sure many people don't know what you're talking about as much as it was at the time. It, it was all, it was... It became global news, but um, hold on, hold on. Yeah, it became global news. Let's talk about the global news. It was it was front page news in all the advertising journals, but that's nobody reads those except us. It was front page news in the New York Times. It was front page news in the Globe and Mail. It was front page news everywhere. It crashed the I Have an Idea website and instantly put that site on the international map. It was huge well, news. <laughs> And we haven't even said what it is. I'll just say briefly what, what happened was that, that Neil, who was actually the creative head of um, Ogilvy & Mather globally and a, and a friend and mentor of mine and, and Janet's, um, and he, he was someone that we uh, had incredible admiration and respect for and affection for. Um, so it, it was, and I might add that I walked into that, that um, 
room. It was in Toronto. A few hundred people were there, agency people, clients, students, to hear him speak about his career. And so I had walked into the room, though, um, as one of the women who didn't actually think gender issues, gender bias even existed. I, I was really in flat-out denial about it. And so I had the world's biggest wake-up call when my idol kind of did the demo. It's like, okay, Nancy, what's it going to take? How about this? Um, during Q&A, a, a young woman asked Neil, you know, why do you think there aren't more women um, in the creative director's position? You know, kind of, I thought, a great question. Um, but for some reason, this set him off. And I'll, I'll never know why he had such a huge reaction to this question. But it sent him into a black, black state of mind. And he said with great disgust uh, that women aren't in those jobs because they don't deserve to be in those jobs. And he used incredibly coarse language. Um, you know, this wasn't somebody just cut. You know, trying to make a a, a, a joke and doing it badly. Laugh, yeah. It was it was a rant, and he he just went on to say, you know, you give them a chance and uh, they'll just run off and suckle something, and that, that's a quote. Of course, I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. He he went on and on about they're they're just going to become mothers and take their eye off the ball. They 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 won't commit and. Um, he just went on and on along those lines for what seemed like an eternity and um, it was, you know, the, the jaws were dropped and I'm looking at Janet, Janet's looking at me, we're both seeing in that moment uh, illusion shattered of who, who this person we thought he was and, and although we knew him to be, you know, somebody that could have sexist comments any day, we kind of took that as, you know, you've got to take the good with the bad. He's a sexist guy. Um, but look at all the good he does. And, and you're right, he's made like a phenomenal contribution to the industry just as an excellent creative leader and creative person. Nonetheless, it was really evident that if he's a leader, and this is how he's showing up every day, he's probably not saying it out loud at all every day, but thinking, having a worldview that women are not to be um, seen as as players who are committed to excellence and who will um, do a great job, then what does it say about the people who aren't admitting to hundreds of people in that moment that this is how they see things? So, so that's when my worldview changed. That okay, I get it. There's a really big, there's a big freaking problem. Yeah. And I went on to my feeling was um, there was nothing to be gained by having a confrontation with a man on a stage, but. Um, and I had a very disappointing conversation with him afterwards where he just didn't really say anything to when I said I had a problem with what he'd said. Mm -hmm. And I have never talked to him again since. But I, I decided that as a female leader in that room, there's no way I could leave it at no response. And I thought we were just looking like the weak people he was describing if, <clears throat> if nobody spoke up for the female perspective certainly in the room and probably also the perspective of all the men that were in the room that would, would have been appalled. Um, so wrote an essay on, on I Have an Ideas website thinking that's reaching the people who were in the room because they sold the tickets to it and Janet helped me um, with that piece and um, posted it and um, were naive enough to think that it would just be seen by the people in that room. Oh God no. <laughs> oh no. It went a little viral 
And um, I think part of the headlines came out of some notion of, you know, woman confronts her boss. You know, there was some some component of that. But it was picked up by, you know, mainstream news because it was seen as, you know what, there is a big problem, isn't there, on, on the gender front. And um, it's much bigger than advertising. That was kind of what kept coming out is this is about way more than advertising. And um, so what did happen was it contributed to a, a reigniting conversation around that issue. Um, I would love to tell you, you know what, and it made all the difference. I don't know about that. I don't. I don't think so. Um, but I, I do. I do feel that it's very valuable when people talk about problems of any kind, and certainly this one, which stays silent. Women are afraid to talk about it. Right. To this day, women are afraid to talk about it. They don't. Many women don't even want to be identified with gender at all. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, stay away from that with a ten foot pole. I don't want to be judged as someone who's some kind of crazy feminist. Um, you know, and as as we know, fem- feminist has become a bad word, which mm-hmm. is um, tragic. I'm glad that's getting a lot of spotlight as a mm-hmm. topic, thanks to. You know, the last people I would have expected, famous musicians musicians and actors talking about it and making us all think harder about what the definition of feminism is, which is simply a belief that men and women should have equal rights. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, what's the problem? It's not that, that hard. It's not that hard. But again, you, you know, you <laughs> mentioned it earlier. Uh, most people don't wake up in the morning going, you know what, I'm going to be a real butt munch today. Uh, it's just internalized. And. I, I remember uh, Neil, after much back and forth, he, uh, he resigned from his job, so uh, he went away. But it wasn't really the, the end of anything. I just had the feeling like it was, they're just putting somebody out to pasture because they just really couldn't do anything else. And I don't think that, uh, like you said, I, I really question if so many of the perceptions and the biases were changed. I think it just, they, they, it was more like, oh, he's just an older guy and you know how he is. And, and we just can't have that liability anymore. Well, I think I think that that's in the you know yes, close into the you know what happened that was going on for sure um, at some level, but in my perception, but um, but it did. There was more discussion about it, and I will say that today the numbers are inching up. If only three um, percent of creative leaders have been women historically, and and for the bulk of my my advertising career, um, the dialogue around where are the women at the top has has really been dialed up, and we are seeing more women stepping into the senior, the most senior roles. There's a wonderful little trend going on right now, so I just hope it will be a sustained trend and not a blip that's reactive. Um, but like Susan Creedel is now the global creative leader for Leo Burnett, for instance, and um, I'm seeing many, many more creative um, leadership jobs going to it, going to women lately. So right. it's becoming, there is new spotlight on it. Again, I feel like it's the spotlight's come back. There always seems to be this pendulum swing. And in the moment, there's some, some good momentum going on. So I am encouraged. Now, let's talk about other change and, and, and uh, helping people inside the creative industry uh, behave better, do better, be more responsible business people than we were. You have started a new company called SWIM and Janet and you go around the country, around the world, 
helping creative leaders be better creative leaders. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences there? Sure. I, of course. Oh no, Mark, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> um, yeah, we started SWIM, um, we're going into our fourth year and um, we we had had a fantastic experience as CCOs for 13 years and knew that we were really at the end of wanting to continue that experience. It, it's kind of, we checked off all the boxes. Um, of what we would have hoped to have accomplished in that role and we were we were eager for some next and, and maybe having been art director right and writer team since the early 90s all the way to that was 2011 that we started to um, look at the exit you know we did okay what else what else is possible and we're both we both had the same interest at the same time so um, We'd always invested a lot of energy in mentoring and helping others go up the ladder. So, so we took that interest, and after much soul searching and consultation with mentors, recognized the opportunity in pointing our um, abilities at a huge need state, which was to say that um, a leader, the leadership soft skills are not something that are taught in school and and unfortunately not on the job anymore haven't been for a very very long time so we saw all these people stepping into leadership roles but falling on their faces when they did not actually know how to motivate people and inspire them and help them do their best that transition from me to we was really really hard so we developed this um, with a lot of input from creative leaders inside and outside of advertising as well as non-creative people who have a lot of insight into um, how to teach really, I mean to, to more formally learn techniques on, on training. Um, and we say that we show up putting a creative lens on leadership. Right, learning. right. So, I mean but it's so, it's so funny, nobody prepared us. I remember back, right. I, I was a copywriter, I became creative director, and I was the classic coach who's, who gets on the ice and skates when his players are screwing up, That's which is obviously the last thing you should be doing. But right. there are so many mistakes that we make. I mean, also we're creatives, uh, we aren't taught to, to, to balance a budget, we aren't taught to uh, figure out um, uh, how, how things are getting paid for, how things are organized. You know, we make a banana dance across the TV screen and somebody, suddenly a paycheck arrives. And, we, and we're happy with that, you know, as long as we keep winning the shiny gold. Well, I think this is an, a, a, a big challenge for creative people particularly. And by the way, we work well outside of creative departments and outside of advertising as well at this point. But the creative people have typically been isolated from the rest of the experience under the agency roof um, with, a, with a priority being put on do your creative thing and make you know, and help us persuade people with all your creativity. So they're not tasked with growing relationships with clients, with um, understanding more holistically how how things get done, and and you know what's going to make a larger collaboration the most successful that it can be. So this has really um, been incredibly well received by people who are dying to to to. Um, get these new insights and, and learn new behaviors and to show up differently and ultimately our, our feeling is that people can not only be way better at, 
at leading, but be happier in their jobs. And, and ultimately, why bother showing up if, you, if you're not happy? So when you are a leader who doesn't know how to lead, I guarantee you're not entirely happy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you feel like you're sort of wandering blind and you just keep stepping on landmines. I remember that feeling myself. And I, I, I believe that there are a lot of creatives out there who are alpha types and who are relentless self-improvers and just don't know where to look. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to finish off on one thing we talked about previously. Uh, one of the biggies that hasn't changed. I remember when I got into the business, um, it was all about the awards. And anybody outside our business probably uh, doesn't understand the awards mania that happens in advertising. It's like the Oscars. You know, we have, but I put it down to it being sort of a culture. You know, it's a culture of advertising. We have our high priests who are our creative directors, our international creative directors, our rock stars. And we have our icons of our religion, which are the awards. And I remember, you know, it was, uh, I would advertise anything uh, as long as there was the promise down the road of an award. And, you know, you get the corner office based on awards. You get the pay raise based on awards. Um, and that in an age of, um, you know, uh, widespread innovation where innovation is, is taking the seat that marketing used to have you'd think that uh, the whole creative culture inside of agencies would be swinging away from awards, but you said it's still solidly rooted in awards. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's been interesting to see, even in that short time I've, I've been out of the um, role in the ad agency, uh, how much energy and effort is put into winning the award, as if the word award solves all the you know, checks off all the check, all the boxes um, on a list, and it, it's it's incredibly self sabotaging as yeah. a strategy, I think, for success. Um, and it it's meant that um, people are naturally then focused only on the uh, can, can be way overly focused on the businesses that they see the greatest potential to do award-winning work for and, and and too quickly discount the possibility of doing better work for for others so any anybody that's showing up with giving their best to only some of their um, clients is is walking on, on very thin ice so it's it's not consciously done nobody's saying to themselves why don't we just really not care about the other accounts and only care about these I think it's quite insidious what's going on it's um there's kind of and I, and by the way I sit on um, the board of, of the one club so I I am a fan of awards I am um, I, I especially admire that show yeah. but um, but I think it's still entire entirely um, accurate to say there's a this is a really good moment for some soul searching to happen on behalf of um, you know at, at the very least the the big holding companies it, it, it's a um, it's a short-term strategy it's a long-term high risk yeah um, well, I, look, I look at it as um, you know the if it comes from an age when when you could do uh, superficial work and say as long as it wins an award you know, where, where you know the boxes that it had to take off uh, to get the attention of the awards judges. Everybody knew that. We all learned that. We didn't learn how to manage a company, but we learned how to win awards. And and today, uh, you know, in the in the face of more authentic brands, where people are looking for brands with some depth and not just superficiality, 
uh, awards seem to be a sort of a totem of the past where you know you do something really radical and crazy and eye-grabbing and award judge eye-grabbing and you're gonna win and uh, it just seems like an icon a relic of the past you know I agree I think that it's um I think there will be a tipping point because it's so bad for business I you know it's inevitable it's in, it's inevitable and it's only one of the challenges for ad agencies today but I do think it's it's a major factor in um, in things not going as well as they could be or should be um, in the agency client collaboration. Right, right. So we'll see. We'll see. Now, uh, your book, Darling, You Can't Do Both, available Amazon, available where else? Available everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere yeah. where fine books are sold. Everywhere, yeah. Now, for all our listeners who are saying to themselves, "I got to get me some of that training. I got to figure out how to actually make my creative department hum." I got to. It isn't just creative departments either, right? You're working with a lot of other companies. Yeah. Yes, we are. Um, we're working across disciplines um, when it comes to ad agencies, and uh, we work with clients as well. And we work with um, everything from architects to um, fashion retailers. So, but. I'm so glad you asked, Mark. Um, we're at swimprogram.ca. Okay. Um, is is an easy way to to find us. And if you arrive at bathing suits, it's not the site. That's right. And um, and I am tired, by the way, of answering that question. Oh, you teach swimming <laughs> when I check in at a hotel. You're a creative, for God's sake. You're not supposed to call it swim program. Oh, well, it was just, <laughs> it was just swim. And there you go. You've got to add more letters after that. Exactly. All right, Nancy, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, Mark, thanks for inviting me. This, it's, it's fun to talk to you even when it's um, recorded. Exactly. exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll carry this on. We've got another four hours ahead of us, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye, Mark. Bye. You've been listening to Didn't See It Coming podcast about brands that learn